0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein, and I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, May 25th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: Hospitals and healthcare companies are racing to implement large language models like ChatGPT into their businesses. Stat reporter Casey Ross joins us to explain what the technology can and can't do and what experts want the world to know before embracing generative AI.
2: There was also major news this week on Sarepta Therapeutics gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, as well as updates on new medicines in development for weight loss.
0: We'll also discuss the rest of the week's biggest biopharma news.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor.
3: Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm thrilled to announce the second season of Color Code, STAT's podcast on racial health inequities. In our second season, we're taking things local to my hometown of Long Island. Long Island's history is one of segregation. Um, Long Island continues to be one of the most segregated parts of our country. Where you live has a huge impact on your health. Long Island is a microcosm of racial health inequities that exist in suburbs across the country. The racial residential segregation in a place like Nassau County, starting from infant mortality to premature death and everything in between, we see that many of these causes of death are consistently higher in communities of color. We'll hear from researchers, patients, clinicians, and advocates on the health inequities Long Islanders face and how communities here are trying to close these gaps. From the front lines of a battle over a landfill, to the efforts to address food insecurity, and disparities in maternal mortality across the island. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm.
2: So as the cultural conversation continues to maybe focus on is too strong a term, but include uh, weight loss medicines like Week-O-V, um, which seem to make a new type of headline each week, this week, the headline was not necessarily about that injectable medicine itself, but rather about the apparently multitude of oral alternatives to it that are in development. We heard about... Uh, the oral version of Wegovy itself from its manufacturer, Novo Nordisk, having positive data in phase three, but also some oral medications that seek to do similar things, if not the same thing, conceivably better or more tolerably that are in development at other companies. Meg, what did we learn this week?
0: So the news that probably kicked all of this off, maybe in a sort of misplaced way, at least to analysts who are following this industry, was um, some news out of Pfizer, data published in the journal JAMA Network Open on Um, A phase two product it has called Danuglipron, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, This is an oral version, a small molecule version of a GLP-1 analog um, that it has where you can take it um, by pill twice a day. And, you know, these data... Uh, suggested that the efficacy that you see here, this was tested in type 2 diabetes, was similar to what you get with uh, the injectable medicines. And that sparked a huge move in Pfizer's stock. I think I saw Umar Rafat's uh, note suggesting it added like $10 billion in market value on this update and what's really funny about it is the data had already been presented i think last year and this was just sort of you know publishing the data the efficacy numbers were the same but what it suggests is that you know these pills are coming um to potentially replace or at least you know provide another option to these once weekly you know, injectable versions of these drugs. What's also funny, though, is Pfizer has another drug in development, and it's going to choose one or the other to take forward into phase three. The other one's just once a day um, that you take uh, orally. You know, just everybody's kind of just like chuckling a little bit about the fact that there was such a reaction. And I think it just shows there's so much interest in these drugs right now.
1: Yeah, you know, with with Pfizer stock uh, significantly underperforming these days, I'm sure uh, that the company appreciated the bump, even uh, even if it wasn't maybe justified. But Meg, uh, looking even further ahead, and you, you did a story this week about kind of I don't know if you call it a next generation or sort of what's next in the kind of weight loss pipeline. What 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 is exciting out there?
0: According to a note from TD Cowen, which came out um, several months ago, uh, there were at least almost two dozen drugs in development just trying to go the oral route for these GLP-1s or similar medicines. But in addition to you know trying to provide different administration options, companies are working on trying to improve the efficacy. And that's really sort of remarkable when you consider just how much weight loss these drugs already produce. You get up to about 15% with Wagovi, uh, according to its you know phase three clinical trial. Uh, and then with Lilly's terzepatide, which is sort of has this like dual effect where you're not just targeting GLP-1, but also GIP, you get up to 22% weight loss. And then I was talking with Louis Aroni at Weill Cornell, who has led a lot of these studies and consults for a lot of these companies. And he said with this sort of next generation version, which is these triple effect drugs. Um he called one of them triple G because it adds glucagon to GIP and GLP1. Uh you could imagine 25 to 30% weight loss. And there is a drug that Lily plans to take into phase three this year that is that sort of triple G um compound. And so we'll have to see how well they work and and then what the side effects look like. But on top of even that, some of these, you know, next generation or things that are in the pipeline, um, Try to have more health benefits, too, You know, like focusing on fat in the liver um, and targeting things like NASH. There's also a compound that Dr. Aroni told me about that's pretty early, but that design, it's designed to sort of stimulate muscles so that you don't have as much lean body mass loss as you're losing weight. So that could be really helpful for these drugs as well.
1: Yeah, isn't that one of the issues with these drugs, Meg, that you lose, not only are you losing fat, but you're also losing lean muscle mass, right? I mean, it's kind of... That's one of the things that people talk about as a potential issue. Right? Uh,
0: you guys had a really interesting um, conversation about that, I think, at one of your summits. And it was sort of jarring to see how much lean um, body mass is also lost with these medicines. But people point out when you lose weight, that does happen. Um, and Dr. Aroni told me you know, the the makeup of the body improves as you lose weight um even if you're losing lean muscle mass as well the sort of overall ratio does get better but if you could prevent a lot of that it would be particularly helpful in older patients where you really don't want to you know make frailty even worse by losing lean muscle mass
2: the whole thing kind of calls to mind the early days or even i guess the present of immunotherapies for cancer where you know there was an initial hit on one scientific target that seemed to work and then slowly but surely did researchers figure out what with trial and error and a lot of error, uh, which other targets might be coupled with that to make those initial medicines more powerful, which is kind of what the whole like triple G phenomenon sounds like. And then likewise, and as you point out in your story, just as in immuno-oncology, surely some of these drugs will not succeed in clinical trials. But it also occurred to me in a business sense, what we saw in oncology is that after the first PD-1 treatment was approved, most companies in- the cancer space decided they needed a PD1 of their own to where I believe there are eight FDA approved PD1s or PDL1s now. It could be seven. The point is, I wonder if we will see a similar kind of land grab with GLP1, where some of the companies that have traditionally played in diabetes or in metabolic health or cardiovascular health who missed out on that first wave that Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly capitalized on, will maybe acquire some of these smaller firms with GLP-1 treatments in development because that will be the baseline upon which they will seek to build combination therapies for this imagined future where um, this is like a tentpole of modern medicine. But then, and we said this so many times in this podcast that I will do it as briefly as possible, (laughs) you cannot overstate the importance of the data that we're looking forward to from Novo Nordis this summer on whether treating people... Um, diagnosis overweight or with obesity with these medicines actually does lead to long-term health benefits because that is the key to, um, you know, the, the kind of elephant in the room with all the investment in these medicines, which is getting them consistently reimbursed such that they become as lucrative as people think they will, um, which wasn't as much of an issue, obviously, in immuno-oncology because cancer drugs just have a cleaner path toward reimbursement by virtue of being literally life-saving. So, we'll have to see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are incredibly important points, Damien. And you know, on the on the small company, you know, part of this, whether they're acquisition targets for the big companies. I spoke with Ray Stevens, the CEO of Structure Therapeutics, um, for this story. They have an oral GLP-1 or in development, or they're focused on this area. Um, And also have to give him a shout out because he said he listens to us uh, every week when he's on his run. And so, hi Ray. I hope you're having a safe run. Watch out for cars. You know, it's really interesting to think about the small companies that have developed drugs in this space. How do you go up against a Pfizer, an Eli Lilly, a Novo Nordisk who already have these huge sales forces, etc.? And he was saying, you know, they're trying to do it through really smart design of their drugs to try to improve, you know, perhaps things, not, not just efficacy, but also the safety profile of these things. There are on target safety concerns, you know, tolerability concerns, the, the nausea, the vomiting that you hear about with these things, which he said oral drugs could potentially improve because you could, you know, modulate the titration a little bit better uh, for patients as you're starting therapy, um, but also any potential off-target safety risks, he said, they can try to mitigate with you know really smart, precise design of their drugs. So I think it'll be really interesting to see the small companies working in this space, and then, of course, the sort of land grab that was, will almost inevitably happen if these are successful.
2: So moving on, it seems not a week goes by these recent months without there being some Massively pivotal news involving Sarepta Therapeutics and its quest to win FDA approval for a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and Adam, this week was no different.
1: What happened? I feel like Sarepta is becoming the new biogen of this podcast, so we talk about it all the time. Uh, But but you're right, Damien, there is always news. Uh, This week, what we learned was that the expected FDA approval decision for Sarepta's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy has been delayed by just about a month. Uh, we were expecting that decision on May 29th, uh, which is Memorial Day, obviously. Uh, that decision is now expected to come on June 22nd, and it does sound like, from, at least from the perspective of Sruptor, what we've learned, you know, obviously this is Surrepta telling us that telling us all of this, this is not the FDA, but it does sound like uh, that the FDA is willing to grand accelerated approval to the gene therapy, but there are some conditions.
0: Well, you know, Adam, I mean, this is something that you actually sort of foretold was coming um, last week. You had, you had suggested that there might be a, a three-month delay as they looked at some of the manufacturing. And, um, you know, it looks like maybe less of a delay than that. Um, so that, you know, in some ways is, is positive news. But what are some of the, the conditions that it, it looks like the FDA is looking at?
1: Yeah, it sounds like the FDA is uh, amenable to approving this with a restricted label by age. And, and it looks like where they're going with this, at least initially, will be an approval for boys with Duchenne at age four to five. And this is the data, that's the strongest, most persuasive data that Sarepta has. Um, they ran into trouble with their previous clinical trials when they looked at uh, the gene therapy in older boys. Uh, so at least initially, it looks like They'll get accelerated approval on four to five-year-olds, and then when they complete the confirmatory, the phase three confirmatory study that they are running, and those data are expected towards the end of the year. Now, that study is being run in 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 boys ages, I think, four to seven, so it, it's a broader patient population, and, and depending on what those data look like, the FDA will grant full approval and also potentially expand the label to, you know, encompass this broader group of patients. So zooming out to to Sareptis business, what does that
2: what does that mean for for the future of this medicine in terms of its availability in the long term and also you know kind of all the hemming and hawing that has gone on not so much by the company but but in terms of people watching from the outside of this process is this perceived could this be perceived as kind of a a compromise that will satisfy a multitude of parties or is this the kind of thing that everybody will be upset about?
1: yeah, I think compromise is a really good way of thinking about this, Damien. First, from the perspective of the FDA and whether or not this gene therapy should be, should be granted accelerated approval. You know, as we, as we've talked about, there was a lot of, a lot of controversy about that. And, you know, obviously this is being pushed very heavily by the company and by patients with Duchenne and their families and, and advocates. So I, I think what the FDA is doing here is kind of threading the needle a little bit. They're saying, yes, we'll put this on the market. Um, we will limit the scope of, you know, who can use this gene therapy based on kind of the most persuasive data we have today, waiting for stronger, more confirmatory data to expand the use of this gene therapy. So again, I think that it kind of gives the FDA a little bit of out everyone gets a little bit of something what they want. Uh, you know, obviously, the Duchenne community gets a gene therapy on the market, maybe people, who critics who think that the data aren't strong enough yet, you know, the, the restrictions sort of maybe appease them a little bit. So I I kind of sort of see that like very this is much very much like a middle ground. Um, from a commercial perspective, obviously a a, a label restricted by age means that you know uh, that, that at least from a, initially, Sarepta will have a much more limited patient population to which they can market this. Um, I, I've seen some estimates of like between eight hundred and maybe a thousand boys initially would be uh, amenable or be eligible for this gene therapy. Obviously, that could grow. Over time. You know, the other thing that, but I guess on the other hand, you know, I think that this role that was always expected to be probably a little bit slow or metered just because there's a lot of complexity and logistics that go into getting the gene therapy. This is not a pill that you just take, you know, you, you, you no one writes a prescription, you go to the pharmacy and you get a pill for gene therapy. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into diagnosing these patients, making screening these patients, and then going through the logistics that are involved with having to get this infused. So I think that was always anticipated that this was going to be a slower rollout as as doctors, as the centers that sort of treat patients, with your and sort of figure out how to handle, you know, administering a gene therapy that they've never used before. Um, so in that way, maybe this the skinnier label, so to speak, doesn't matter as much.
0: And then, guys, there were also some headlines this week about a potential COVID surge in China. Um, Damien, of course, this affected the stocks of Moderna and BioNTech and similar companies. What was your reaction to that?
2: Well, confusion, I guess. Number one, I saw, I believe it was on Tuesday, that Moderna, uh, which of course markets a vaccine for COVID-19, BioNTech, which co-markets one with Pfizer, and then CureVac, which markets nothing, um, all rose by about 10%, which considering the size, especially of Moderna and BioNTech, is a, a huge swing in valuation. And so I kind of went on the internet to try to figure out what was going on. And I couldn't find anything other than, as you mentioned, reporting out of China that the nation is preparing for a potential surge in cases due to an alarming new subvariant of the virus. But I still, and so I assume that that is the only, or that that is what drove the weird stock movements for those two companies, for those three companies, which kind of normalized the next day. But even that is confusing to me because, of course, China famously, uh, they don't, Moderna and BioNTech do not sell their vaccines in China. It's a little bit complicated. I think one is available for expats, et cetera, but they never managed to crack the Chinese market, I think in large part because Beijing doesn't want them to. China has focused on homegrown vaccines. And the reporting I saw about this predicted surge um, in, in Bloomberg specifically cited that the nation is... Accelerating the development of bespoke, you know, variant-specific vaccines from domestic manufacturers. So, if you were bidding up the share prices of Moderna, BioNTech, and CureVac, most confusingly, based on what's happening in China, I'm not really sure what you're seeing in terms of how that might affect their businesses and and their businesses, which at least for the first two companies are in a dramatic and and predicted decline in 2023 because the demand for their products is not nearly what it was in 2021 and 2022. So I don't really know how to button that up other than like weird things happen on Wall Street day to day.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Read Out Loud, the podcast that brings you the latest in healthcare and biotech news. I'm your host, Meg Terrell, and joining me today is a very special guest, Casey Ross, a brilliant reporter from Stat News.
2: That's right, Meg. Casey is an absolute powerhouse in the world of healthcare journalism. His insightful reporting and in-depth analysis have made him a
1: trusted voice in the industry. Absolutely, Damien. Casey's coverage spans a wide range of topics, from groundbreaking medical advancements to the intricate workings of the pharmaceutical world. He's been at the forefront of the most critical healthcare stories, consistently delivering top-notch reporting.
0: And what sets Casey apart is his ability to humanize the complexities of healthcare. He dives deep into the lives of patients, providers, and innovators, giving us a window into their experiences and challenges.
2: That's precisely why we are so excited to have him here today. Casey's unique perspective and wealth of knowledge will undoubtedly enrich our discussion and provide our listeners with a deeper understanding of the healthcare landscape.
1: So without further ado, let's welcome Casey Ross, the remarkable Stat News reporter who continues to shape the conversation around healthcare and biotech.
4: Thank you. I'm honored to be here and thrilled to engage in a meaningful conversation about the topics that truly matter in healthcare.
0: Well, we're delighted to have you, Casey. Your work inspires us and countless others. Together, let's explore the stories behind the headlines and uncover the transformative potential of healthcare innovation.
2: So listeners, get ready for an episode filled with captivating insights, thought-provoking discussions, and of course, some surprises along the way.
1: Stay tuned as we dive into the fascinating world of healthcare with the incredible Casey Ross from Stat News.
2: Okay, that is enough of that. Uh, (laughs) That that strained dialogue about incredible journeys is what I got when I asked ChatGPT, the oft-discussed generative AI tool, to help me introduce Stat Reporter Casey Ross on a podcast. It was, like many products of generative AI, kind of impressive, but subtly inaccurate and, in the end, questionably useful.
0: And if I may make a suggestion for the next time you do this, uh, ask it for a short intro, because that was ridiculous. Uh, Anyway, so this experience somewhat mirrors the early results of so-called large language models when put to use in healthcare. And this week, Casey was part of a team of stat reporters who published a series of stories looking at how generative AI is already changing the practice of medicine and the debate around whether it's being used safely.
1: So Casey, earnestly and uh, non-robotically this time, thanks for coming back to the podcast.
4: Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, it's nice to be here as a real human.
1: <laughs> uh, well, before we get to all the inspiring
2: and thought provoking things that we promised, may- maybe let's start with like the absolute basics. When you type a question, whether about healthcare or podcasts for that matter, into a tool like ChatGPT, what is it doing to come up with the answer?
4: It's doing math is the is the sort of shortest answer. It's it's much like the autocomplete that you have in your email or on your phone, it's next word prediction. So it's predicting, uh, based on all the patterns of text that it's learned over time, what is the most likely next word. And it's using probability as kind of a proxy for reason. So if you like picture a crossword puzzle with certain letters filled in, what you see when you ask ChatGPT a question is sort of that matrix getting filled in.
0: Generative AI tools aren't new, but they seem to be newly ubiquitous. What happened that led to the recent explosion in popularity?
4: The release of ChatGPT uh, came after one of these models was trained on impossible amounts of data. Um, it, so what nobody had sort of realized was that when you put basically an autocomplete architecture with uh internet scale, web scale data, then you get this model that is able to sort of retain uh, knowledge or information in a way and then pattern match and respond in these very open ended ways that we haven't seen generative AI or any kind of AI tool like that do before. So it's really captured the popular imagination.
1: So Casey, how are these tools getting put to use in health and medicine? Maybe you know, maybe give us an example. A uh, you know, a, a use case.
4: Yeah, a simple use case that is being tested right now at three uh, health systems, uh, University of Wisconsin, UC San Diego, and Stanford is to use uh, GPT to respond to questions that are posed within patient portals. These are the portals that everybody now has that list all your health records, and you can go in and you can uh, make appointments and do other things. And sometimes you might ask a question in uh, the portal. Of your clinician, and there's sort of an exponential increase in these questions, and health systems can't answer them fast enough. So why not use a tool like ChatGPT if it can answer them accurately? And so that's being tested right now. And those are the kinds of use cases I think uh, we're going to see in the early run before we get to more complicated and risky things like using it for diagnosis.
2: Well, yeah, I wanted to get to the risk because I think that distinction you made is important. That it it is doing mathematics; it's using a data set to predict what the next word would be in a string of words. It is not thinking or reasoning. As you said, it is kind of like a, a proxy for reason. But like behind all of the marketing, it really is just like a big math tool. So then when you apply it to something like medicine, where uh, reason and actual thought are very important, what are the risks that, that experts foresee as this technology kind of continues to pervade health and medicine?
4: it doesn't know the difference between what's false and what's true and it doesn't care uh, so when you ask it a question it's going to produce an answer and if it happens to be accurate and factual well then that's just a really happy coincidence but we need those happy coincidence coincidences to happen in healthcare, you can't give people inaccurate information because decisions are gonna be made off of that information, you know, that are gonna hurt people. And the other thing I think we have to worry about is, as we rely on these tools, you have to really think about how it's gonna affect human beings and their ability to do the tasks that ChatGPT is suddenly doing for them. I don't know about you, but when I drive around now and my phone dies out and my GPS is no longer working, it's not a good situation. I think my my native sense of direction has gotten worse. What is going to happen when we lean on these tools to do things that, until now, we've been having to think through on our own?
0: I am definitely in the same boat as you. I actually found some directions that I had printed out from like, you know, multiple decades ago before we had these phones and and like GPS in our cars and stuff like that. And I was like, holy crap, I can't believe we used to do this. Anyway, (laughs) so what kinds of rules and regulations are healthcare institutions putting in place around the use of these kinds of tools, especially when you think about things like using patient data to train these models?
4: yeah we don't know much about that. I think they are kind of building that plane while it's in the air um so they're they're going about testing these, and I think they're using their uh usual sort of internal processes like i r b to sort of vet these projects and and sort of come up with the parameters. but right now, each system as they build their own tools they're they're doing that on their own. Uh, I'm sure there's some comparing of notes going on, but Uh, This is, you know, it's a frontier and, you know, frontiers are lawless.
1: So Casey, with this technology, there's uh, an issue called the hallucination problem. Can you explain what that is and how researchers are dealing with it?
4: Yeah, these tools will just make things up. I mean, when you talk about generative AI, um, you can probably just cross out the word generative and replace it with make things up because that's what they do. They're supposed to make things up based on everything all of the data that they have uh, within them. Uh, So, But there are ways to deal with that. You can train your model on a technique uh, known as reinforcement learning where you give uh, the model human feedback so that it learns which response is preferential based on uh, the human's uh, review of the the output to figure out which one is uh, the best one to use. So when you do that, you can help sort of counteract the problem of hallucination, but it requires sort of a very focused training approach to make sure that uh, you can get rid of uh, the factual inaccuracies. And there's no way you're going to be able to stamp them uh, all out, because it's just a tremendous amount of data, and you never know what someone's going to ask.
2: So zooming out even beyond healthcare, there was a Senate committee hearing last week, I think it was last week, Um, Casey, that I know you tuned into, in which the legislators of this nation looked at this issue, AI more generally, and the frontier that it presents, as you described, and and kind of thought hard out loud about how it ought to be regulated while joined by some of the leaders of the industry. What, How did that hearing play out? And, and what do people think might come of the renewed or new legislative attention toward this issue?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was a very unusual hearing in the sense that you had uh, the technology leaders for very big uh, companies coming to Congress and saying, you know, you really should regulate what we're doing here. Um, and there was a willingness by the members of Congress, it seemed, to ask some questions about how the technology works um, in, a, in a more humble way so that you didn't have uh, people making these huge mistakes uh, in asking the questions that sort of betrayed their their knowledge of the subject. Um, but it did feel a little bit kind of like puppeteering in a way it was clear that they had um, rehearsed the testimony a little bit in advance if not formally then at least informally because sam altman who is the ceo of open ai had met with all the senators and many of the house uh, members in meetings beforehand so there was a kind of a familiarity and a collegiality there uh, where it seemed as though they would sort of had uh, decided there was, there was going to be a very friendly conversation that went on. What's going to come out of it? Not quite sure. Uh, I think they're talking about creating a new uh, federal agency, and I think he will see some legislation um, that would create an agency focused specifically on regulating AI uh, in, the, in this new and more powerful form.
1: So Casey, for the Luddites out there, is there any way to avoid generative AI? Or are we just inevitably all going to be using it?
4: I think it's inevitable. I, I just don't see any way. I mean, yes, you can just go out into the woods and have a cabin and it's Walden and Thoreau and all that. And you can kind of, you know, completely distance yourself from society. But if you're going to be around in the world that we all live in and be a part of society, then this these tools are going to find their way into your lives and other people around you are going to be using them as well. So um, I, I think that it's going to scale up and be embedded, uh, I, I would say, fairly quickly.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's episode. But before we go, we want to extend a heartfelt thank you to our special guest, Casey Ross from Stat News.
1: Absolutely, Meg. Casey, your insights and expertise have truly elevated our conversation today. Your dedication to uncovering the stories that shape healthcare is commendable.
2: Okay, uh, ChatGPT wrote a whole outro that is uh, considerably longer than what you just heard, uh, albeit equally ridiculous, but we will spare you having to hear that. Casey, in real life, non-robotically, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun to be here.
1: That does it for another
2: episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think your host should be replaced by generative AI robots. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: See you next week.